0: Romans chapter 7, 13 through 25. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual,
1: And there you go, I uh, I rest my case, right? That's uh, that's fantastic. Uh, That's it in a nutshell. I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Wretched, by definition, is a state of unhappy and uncomfortable state, just really wretched. As I shared last week, uh, this passage is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, and it's certainly within the book of Romans, it's caused one of the most difficult and most uh, controversial, most um, oh, most divisive conclusions. That would be the best way to say it. It has caused the most divisive conclusions because it has drawn people apart by their interpretation of this passage. Yet I don't think that was the intention that Paul had when he wrote this text. I think he wanted to create tension, but uh, I don't think that's what he was intending. It's like when you share a really great joke. You know, you guys ever shared a really great joke? I have a couple of. Exceptional jokes, uh, just exceptional jokes. Especially in the early hours of the morning. And when I say early hours of the morning, I mean around 1 a.m. Around 1 a.m., some of my jokes are absolutely priceless. They really are, they, they just, uh, especially if I'm looking over the Lake Entrepenas, which is just one hour east of Madrid downtown near Spain. And as I stare there at the lake and I look at the starry sky above, just sitting outside this campsite near the kitchen, and I share this joke with all of the tension built up in it, and as I deliver the punchline, it's a really, really good joke. The setting really sends itself. And I'm going to be back there in December teaching, and I will share this joke, and it will be a home run all the way till the very end. People will be like in so much tension, waiting for the punchline, and when I release that punchline, it'll be a valve. shh, ah, I feel so good. But this is the thing with uh, Paul. Uh, he created all this tension and uh, everybody's kind of gone the entirely different way. I don't think they actually expected this. In fact, when they look at this, they, they're kind of waiting for the punchline and they know the punchline's coming. It actually arrives in Romans chapter eight, but, uh, which is the series that we start next week called Saints. The problem is that our eyes are drawn down to wretched. We can't see how wretched moves into wonder because we can't get past the larger story and we anticipate any of this kind of stuff. We're simply just drawn into wretched man that I am, wretched girl that I am, and we kind of mire ourselves inside. It's not a really pretty sight. It's it's not that like birds flocking together. It's more like flies swarming around roadkill. That's what I thought, Swan, you know, that's what it is. It's just, it's just a horrible side, and we get sidetracked by the tension, and we're paralyzed from seeing anything else. Even when we get the largest hint, and the punchline's coming, we simply ignore it, and we go back to wretched man that I am. So what is this tension story that is so distracting, that has been misunderstood, this tension all the way through inside Romans chapter seven, that I mentioned last week? to you very, very briefly. It's this very famous verse. In fact, it's actually the verse that we use for the words to remember. You know that every day when we send out the daily walk, you read the daily walk, as you scroll down on the daily walk, there's a little section there called words to remember, which you're supposed to memorize uh, and, and kind of remember those words. And so every day there's the words to remember and these are the words to remember. And this is the text. I do not understand what I do For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. This is it. This is the struggle. And we kind of like roll around inside that text because it's a famous text that makes us feel wretched about ourselves. So I kind of like this text sometimes. In fact, when I read this the first time, I kind of resonated with it. So I thought of one single recalibrate question in true American style. It's a multiple choice. You kind of like that, don't you? I know you thought you'd like that. Uh, Multiple choice, and uh, it's inside the worship guide. So if you have your worship guides, uh, you can turn and open your worship guide. And if not, I will read the question to you. Here is the recalibrate question. Not recalibrate questions, but recalibrate question, because I only have one today with lots of options. And you can even circle the answer that you think it's gonna be, okay? And then you can work out whether you agree with me or disagree with me. I know where you're thinking, but let's see where we go with this. Who is this person in Romans 7, 13, 25 that Patty read for us in the spoken word? Is it a pre-follower of Jesus? Is it a follower of Jesus? Is it a metaphor for Israel? Is it followers without the Holy Spirit? Or is it, and we are hoping, all of the above, right? Because that would be the safest bet. That's what we're hoping, I mean we really do. So option A, a pretty follower of Jesus which means that this is why we do things wrong. Because clearly, if they follow Jesus, they wouldn't do this kind of stuff. That's why we sin, we can't get back on track. It's because you're not following Jesus. So the things I do, I do not want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing, it's because I just don't follow Jesus. Which implies, which implies, that once you do follow Jesus, all of this will stop. Mm -hmm. And so option A becomes so attractive for people who love perfection, who love the final generation theology, who love the idea of eventually men and women will just become so good they'll stop doing everything bad. Legalism becomes so great because this is what we believe. This plex must be implying this kind of option. So if you circled option A, were you thinking that that's what the pressure is in your life? Option B, maybe it's a follower of Jesus, someone who's on their faith journey, which means that even while you're following Jesus, you, you never really stop sinning right, because, you know, the struggle's real, right? It's like, it's hard, we, we love Jesus, but there are days when it's just rough, temptation comes along and things happen and it's just difficult, which implies that following Jesus kinda really doesn't make any difference to our lives. <laughs> we, we just kinda mess up anyway, so welcome to reality. I mean, I follow Jesus, but do I really make a difference? No, so free-flowing grace, it's okay, anything goes. Liberals love this, you know. The struggle's real, my friend. Ignore any attempt to really be engaged. Or is it option C? Well, it's not really about me or you. It's just a metaphor about Israel struggling with the law, which means that as soon as sin, as soon as Satan, as soon as evil appeared and entered this planet, those who've been called by God this is a model, then, of a relationship between God and Israel and showing them that how God, Israel has actually struggled with the law, which implies that sin cannot be dealt with on their own because there has to be a solution far greater than them. So the bigger story is that it raises the tension and pushes us to a tougher place. Or option D, this must be followers without the Holy Spirit because... Paul hasn't really mentioned the Holy Spirit yet until next week, Romans chapter 8, when we begin. And he starts to unpack the most amazing chapter in the whole book of Romans, chapter 8, when he talks about the Holy Spirit. Oh, this must be followers who don't have the Holy Spirit, which then implies that the Holy Spirit really didn't exist in the First Testament. It only implies that after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit kind of came upon here. And so the First Testament The Old Testament is bad. The Second Testament is good. And the Holy Spirit is now only active after Pentecost. Or option E. All of the above. A little bit of this. A little bit of that. I don't know. I don't really care. I just want to follow Jesus. And this text is way above my pay grade. And why are we even studying it? I just want to circle E. And can we get to the good stuff? Uh, is there fellowship lunch today? No. Ah, oh, wrong Saturday. I mean, I know, I know, some of you are thinking this, but, uh, but stay with me because there's something amazing inside this passage. There's something deep inside here that, and, and we do pick option E often because we love to be able to pick a little bit of smattering inside there. So, which did you choose? I won't ask you to put your hands up. I will explain to you where I stand, but I won't ask you to put your hands up there just yet. The Christians, generally, we tend to go to A, B, and D. Did you know that? We love A, B, and D. Option C, occasionally, and uh, we pick option E when we're hungry. But uh, we tend to go A, B, and D. And why do we like option A, B, and D? Because it helps us address sin. So sin is there, and we need to address it, and we realize that it actually helps us every single day, because sin is there all the time. Look, look, let's just say you don't believe in God. Let's say you don't believe in the Bible. Let's say that someone just shared this text as a, I don't know, a piece of poetry, as a, as a, as a song, as a, as a movie, as some kind of lyrics to you. You would say, well, it kind of rings true. That's kind of like the story of a narrative. It makes sense, you know, things I do. I don't want to do the things I don't want to do, I kind of do. I mean, everybody has those kinds of days, right? We struggle with simple things every day. When I wrote The Daily Walk this week, I mentioned that those are the kind of struggles that we have every single day. I talked about my little Bowflex weight, and I talked about Cody Becker. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that uh, on The Daily Walk. I talked about how Cody Becker and I were doing an arm wrestle uh, this summer, and uh, and how depressed I was when the 15-year-old beat me in an arm wrestle, uh, which is really really discouraging, right? You know, because you want to crush him. I mean, in the name of Jesus, um, as you're looking at him and thinking, "I love you, Cody." You. Uh, and then he realize when he beats you, you're like, oh, uh, forgive me. And so, but you know, when, when he beats you, you're like, oh my goodness, I've got. And I go home and I look at the Bowflex machine, the little Bowflex single dumbbell, the single dumbbell. I don't have two. That would require both arms to work. <laughs> That's way too much work. And so I have a single dumbbell and I was like, should I pick it up? And then I think of Cody Becker. Like, yes, I should. But I haven't yet. I'm going to. (laughs) I'm going to. I'm going to. In the future. (laughs) Before next summer. (laughs) we'll pick it up so that we'll be on again, you know, and I'll have a baseball cap so I can turn it around over the top, you know, and so I'll be ready for this moment. But we do because, you know, the things that we struggle with, we want to be able to like kind of overcome, and we all know what it's like every single day where we kind of fail and we, we face these kind of things. The ordinary day of life, we struggle with complicated things. We struggle to be kind to each other. What I think is an easy choice for me and should be an easy choice for you is not. What you think is an easy choice for you Like picking up the dumbbell is not an easy choice for me, right? And so we think these things are there, but they are a struggle. We find that we make mistakes, and then we don't even know that we made mistakes. Jesus understood this dilemma. Jesus understood this pressure point that we face. In fact, in the First Testament, there was this practice called the sin offering. I know that when you're reading the Bible through the entire year, you get to Leviticus and you're like, oh, skip that book, and you move on, right? (laughs) But if you read the book, you'd actually see there's a lot of great stuff inside there. And you get to Leviticus chapter four, it actually talks inside there about the sin offerings. It says, if you did something not knowing it was wrong, or if you did something even though you knew it was wrong, but you did not want to, you would take a sin offering. Are you with me? Right? So you did something, you didn't know it was wrong, Do a sin offering. You did something, you knew it was wrong, but you kind of still did it, even though you didn't want to do it, did a sin offering. Paul, who understood his Bible, is actually quoting this issue inside this text, the famous text, when he says this, I do not understand what I do, those sins I did not know, right? And then he says, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, those sins I know I should not do, but I end up doing So he says, the solution is a sin offering. Are you with me? This is what he says. The solution is a sin offering. And he says the solution is a sin offering that you find in chapter 7. So now stay with me in this tension, because again, when we read this text, we're just like, it's just about me. It's just about my struggle. Are you seeing where I'm going with the option so far? Maybe. And we go, oh, what wretched person I am. Paul's not talking so much about that. In fact, we just don't understand all the choices that we have until we understand that Paul is saying there is an an ultimate choice that has to be made inside here. And that's why when we lean into this passage, we're not so focused on this personal choice. There actually is a better way to understand it, which I believe is option C. Option C. The one that nobody really picks. I pick option C. It's a metaphor for Israel. Sure, you can see yourself inside the text, pre, post, whatever you wanna do, spend some time inside there, but you really do need to think about what it means for your walk with God if you're gonna really believe that it actually is an image of who you are. Truth is is that I really believe the text is talking about option C, a metaphor for Israel. Let me explain, I'm gonna go a little technic on you uh, and I'm gonna just connect some dots here for you so that you can enjoy this. Remember how much Paul likes to repeat himself? Yes, some people love this. My wife does not like this. She and I argue about this all the time on the podcast. She's like, oh, what a surprise. Paul's repeating himself again. I'm like, yeah, I know. Uh, He's trying to be, you know, expand. She's like, no, he doesn't know what to say. I mean, he has a lot to say inside it. But he does repeat in many cases, but he expands. So if you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, in your Bibles in the pew, it'd be page 1040, Romans chapter 2 and uh, you can pay, take out a pen uh, in your Bibles, uh, in, in the pews inside there, and you can write in the Bibles, it's okay, because somebody else will open it up, maybe you'll take this Bible home, and you can do this in your own Bible, and it's just a really good way to see how it's actually connected. And I'm just gonna show you how Romans chapter two and three are just paralleled all the way through the book of Romans. Real quick, three little things you're gonna write, and this is where it goes. So Romans chapter two, page 1040 in your Bible. Now when you get to verses 17 to 24, Romans chapter two. I want you to look at Romans chapter two, verses 17 24, page 1040. I want you to write right next to verses 17 24, Romans seven. That's all you need to write there. Verses 17 24, write Romans seven, because that's actually what Paul's saying. He says in verses 17 24, he then repeats it all through Romans chapter seven. So he said it in verses, in verses 17 24, and then he expands it in chapter seven. Then you scroll down to verses 28 and 29, and you write right next to that, like I did in my Bible here, you write Romans chapter 8. Because he just expands those two verses into a whole chapter in Romans chapter 8. And then when you see chapter 3, you can write down there Romans chapter 9. Because he expands all of chapter 3 into Romans chapter 9. If you understand that Paul starts off with kind of a really basic a basic summary and then expands this, you'll start to see that there is a thread of the story. You'll start to see that there is a purpose behind the story. So the original story is actually repeated in greater detail inside here. So stay with me about this. What was chapter 2 all about? He basically said this. It's actually just to tell you the law exists to magnify, to tell you what... what? What? that you've done something wrong. That's why when he opens up in chapter seven verse 13 and says that the law does not bring any death, it's because I want you to understand the law is actually not a bad thing. The law is a good thing. It's like um, a flashlight. I would call it a torch in England, but that's inappropriate. So here it's a flashlight. It's a flashlight. It just highlights, it lights up, and it just tells you this is what's wrong. This is sin. This is what the law does. It lights up and lets you know what's actually wrong. That's all it does. It tells you this. This becomes way clearer in the Greek, which obviously you guys don't have, but I did make copies of the Greek translation, and interlinear translation, which I included with the sermon and for a couple of the connect groups as well. And there's one little word. Uh, It's called hina in Greek. And it basically means so that. In the English translation inside here, it actually doesn't come out so that it says order that, it says and, but this word appears twice inside chapter 7. And I'm telling you all this so that you, and you're like, oh man, I'm not, I'm not with him. I've lost it about 10 minutes ago. I I think he said something about lunch. And I'm like, what is he on now? So that, I'm going to come back, I'm going to put it all together. And then you'll be like, oh, not wretched. Yeah. Hang in here with me. Paul introduces this passage in verse 13 with these two little words, so that. And he pulls this together to tell us that the law exists, so that it will show you, so that the commandment allows space for sin to grow, so that the tension is built up, so the punchline will exist. And when the punchline comes along, you'll understand that the punchline has been the same throughout the entire book of Romans, that God said this, there is a problem, it is sin, and I'm going to send the Messiah, and his name is Jesus. And when Jesus comes, this will be resolved. And if you understand this, you'll understand that this problem here is just expanded over and over again. And this is repeated in chapter five, verse 20, all the way through. Now you're thinking, I don't know if that's enough, I don't know if that's enough, so there's just a couple of more things I wanna share with you. In chapter seven, verse 21, when Paul's talking about evil, he says that evil lies close at hand, and this is actually just a, a very gentle echo when, he, when Paul says this, evil lies close at hand, he's echoing back, and the Jews would have understood this at the time, an echo back to another phrase, a phrase where evil lies close at hand is in Genesis chapter 4, 17, where it says, and sin is crouching at the door. It lies close at hand. It's just crouching at the door. When sin began, when sin was there, where Cain is facing this, where, and so Paul is saying, look, sin is crouching at the door. It's lying close at hand. It is creeping towards you. It's all inside that.' and Paul's saying, there's a bigger.'" Narrative going on inside here. And I want you to understand that people have struggled through this all the time. In fact, in Paul's day, the Greek and the Romans struggled with this question all the time. They said, How is it that people back then just couldn't understand how somebody could see what was good but still did bad things? They both struggled with this. They couldn't get this way around them. They said, There's got to be something wrong with us. It doesn't make any sense. And Paul says, I know the answer to this. It's a struggle that everybody has. In fact, he says, even Israel, even Israel, that actually is the metaphor, the symbol, the example that God said, I will use a people, I will work with this people, and they will be an example to the whole world that you still need a Messiah, and the Messiah will come, and when he does, he is the one who will deal with this thing that is growing called sin because sin has been growing all the time. It is not about you and I. All the time, I know we'd like to make everything personal about us, but this passage is not just about us. It is, of course, hints inside there, a battle between two egos, two laws, and a cry of anguish, and two slaveries, but it's not just a victory. Sin has grown. The struggle that Cain had is the same thing that Israel has, that we have, and the only solution The punchline, the hint that he gives in 724 is that the Messiah will come. Because when he says, oh, wretched man, who can save me? When he says, what can save Israel? He says, it is a Messiah who will arrive. And what is required to deal with this thing? A sin offering. And we find that in Romans 8, verse 3, when he is condemned sin in the flesh. And when we read that text, some translations kind of mess it up. But in the English Standard Version, it really says it beautifully when it says he condemns sin in the flesh. In other words, God did not condemn Jesus. God dealt with sin, condemned sin. God addressed sin He did not condemn Jesus. Sin grew to its full, crouching at the door, and sin causes the pain. And inside that pain, inside Israel, the Messiah appears inside Israel. So Paul is crying out in the midst of Israel, saying, We, wretched Israel, we are the ones who are struggling through this. And God sends his son, Jesus, in the midst of this, and he is our hope. And this is what chapter 7 really comes to as the finale inside here. The problem is that we have never really seen it this way. We have for years kind of used the law as this kind of bashing stick on people. When I arrived at this church in Boulder, I had some people come to me and say, I hope that you, you know, you're going to make uh, evangelistic appeals every single sermon. I hope that you are going to, you know, push people really hard every single time, you know, to make commitments to God. And I mean, they were pretty direct about how they thought I should preach and, and, uh, and what needs to happen and how people are going to come to the front and uh, kneel down here. And I mean, everybody had techniques about how it should be done and stuff. It was, it was kind of interesting to listen to some of their ideas about what should be done here. Uh, and, and I know where some of these ideas come from. I know where some of these traditions come from and what should be done inside here, but it's true. We have used the law as this kind of great stick, and we beat people up with the law so they may return to God because we misunderstand the law. Have you ever read uh, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress? Yeah? You know when uh, when a Christian is traveling up the mountain? And as he's traveling up the mountain, suddenly this crazy guy comes out of the mountain with a stick and beats him up and knocks him all the way down the mountain. And Christian's like, where did that guy come from? And suddenly the guy works out that the guy who beat him up, the crazy guy who beat him up is Moses with the law. And he's the one, the law beats you up and knocks you down the mountain. Well, this was a common way that people saw the 10 commandments. This is the way that people understood the law of God. What a horrible perspective on the law. John Wesley, uh, actually, when he was trying to teach people how to preach the law, said this, I think the right method of preaching is this. At our first beginning to preach at any place after you declare the love of God to sinners and a willingness that they should be saved is to preach the law in the strongest, the closest, the most searching manner possible, only intermixing the gospel here and there and showing it afar off, all right? All right. After more and more persons are convinced of sin, we may mix in more and more of the gospel in order to beget faith, to raise into spiritual life those whom the law hath slain. But this is not to be done too hastily. Oh no, no. Keep the law up front. Beat them up with the law and then just drop a little bit of, little bit of gospel. Just a little bit of gospel and then, and then beat them up with the law again. And you know why? Because we don't understand the law of God is a reflection of Jesus Christ, all right? When you start to understand that the law of God is a reflection of Jesus, you understand that God is saying the law is not something bad. The law is actually something to be beautiful, to be be seen in the face of Jesus. It's a reflection and a solution. You don't see the law as a bad thing. You see Jesus and you see the law and they are in sync. The gospel and the law go hand in hand. To know Jesus and to see Jesus and to have Jesus is to understand what the law is. And this is a pivot that's really difficult. This is what Paul was doing. Paul's like, all through chapter seven, he's like, listen, it's not that difficult. Your intention, because you're rejecting God. Israel, you're rejecting God. That's why your intention with this, when you start to accept God, when you live with God, and in chapter eight, I'm gonna tell you how the Spirit actually has been working with you all through the entire First Testament. The Spirit has always been active, because the Spirit is part of the Godhead, because the Spirit has always existed from eternity. I've always been in there, but you do not stay connected to this. So he says, I need you to know I am pivoting on you all the time. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, there's a huge turning point in the story. It's a pivot. And this same pivot, I'm going to bring to you today, all right? All right? So in Mark chapter 8, I'm, you can turn there if you have time. It's page 936 in your Bibles. Page 936. But I'm, because of time, I'm just gonna read through this real quick to you. But Mark chapter 8. So make a note of it. Look in your Bibles if you have time, but make a note of this for yourself. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and 30. Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do the people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Another said, Elijah. And others of the prophets, and he said, "But who do you say I am?" And Peter answered, "You are the Christ." And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, watch what uh, the response by Jesus to Peter's answer. All right, because Peter just said, "Well, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah." And and if you read a little bit more, just just watch what. Jesus says to Peter in his response. And he began to teach them saying that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. (laughs) But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not settling your mind on things of God, but on things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Peter, there's no way to establish the kingdom without the cross. In fact, you want life by not taking up the cross. You think that Israel is wretched? The only solution is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that is where you find life. And that's where life exists. For when you choose to follow Jesus, you choose to belong to a transformative narrative. And this transformative narrative is called life, all right? Now, life in Greek is psyche. And psyche is where we get psychology. Psychology is where we process our identity often. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who gives you life. I am the one who gives you identity. Come to me and I will give you life. I will give you identity. I will turn this world, I am the one who will give you a new narrative. I am the one who will give you a new story. This whole thing about you being wretched, this whole thing where you struggle, this whole thing where the whole of Israel, the whole universe is struggling, I'm telling you, there is a new way if you will stay connected to me. But you have to be connected to me in order to be rescued. The difficulty is that we struggle to be connected to him. I have a friend of mine, um, Whose name is Duffy, and uh, good friend, mentor, uh, Baptist preacher, and uh, years ago uh, he had the opportunity to be able to preach um, with uh, with several of his uh, several of his friends in Washington D.C. Uh, near where, at the time, Ronald Reagan was the president. Um, so this is quite a while ago, and he told me the story how he said, "I got to go out there and do like this uh, this kind of like short week of prayer." Um, And it was uh, for this church, and it was close to the White House, so I was kind of excited. It was close to the White House, and and, uh, so I went out there, and I did the week of prayer. And after the week was nearly coming to the end, uh, one of the guys came to me that evening and said to me, hey, I work uh, White House security. I'm uh, part of the detail, and um, I I just want to thank you, Duffy, for everything you've done for us as a congregation, for this church. It's just been absolutely phenomenal. And, uh, and so I would just love to pay you back in some kind of way, and I was just wondering whether you would love to meet the president. And Tuff is like, meet the president? <laughs> yeah, he said, look, I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of in charge, and uh, <laughs> and so I can I can make that happen. But listen, you know, Ronald, the president, said, he said, not Ronald, he said the president uh, is uh, is just got a very tight schedule and I have this very small window and, um, and I can make it happen where you can have like one minute with him. And one minute? And Duffy's like, yes. And he said, well, traffic and everything else, this is the time, you have to get up at this time, get through DC, we'll get you cleared the whole lot, and we'll get you all through the security, and we'll get you up there and you can have one minute with the president. And Duffy was just like on cloud nine. He, he told his wife, and he said, this is good. And they went home, and they were staying with his family uh, in DC. and uh they told the family, they had dinner, and it was a great dinner, and they went down to the, uh, to the bedroom, and their bedroom was one of those ba- bedrooms in the basement, so they went downstairs in the basement, and he said he was just pumped about this, right, so excited about this, and so he went downstairs in the basement, and it was one of those basements with no windows, just a dark hole, uh, and uh, he, he said to his wife, I have got I just put the alarm clock on, and, and uh, he said, we've we got to get up, we've got to get ready, we are going to go see the president. this is going to be amazing, and so pumped about the opportunity to see Ronald Reagan for a minute, and uh, he, said, I just, he said, "He said, Duffy I, said, I couldn't even go to sleep. I thought maybe I should just stay awake all night, um, and then I could sleep during the day and then preach that night. You know, just to be able to see the president and be able to talk to him and just have a, a conversation for even one minute, it'd be such a privilege." So he said. Eventually, he said he fell asleep, and uh, he uh, he went to sleep, and then he woke up. The alarm went off. He woke up, and he got up, and uh, and uh, he. He realized that actually, no, actually sorry, I got this wrong, the alarm didn't go off. Uh, The phone rang before the alarm went off. And as the phone rang, he picked up the phone and it was his friend from the White House security. And the friend said to him, "Uh, Duffy, uh, listen, I just wanted to know where you are. And Duffy's like telling himself, man, I told my body not to wake up, because you you don't want to wake your body up until this point. I just said to my friend, well, I'm in bed with my wife. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to get up soon because the alarm's going to go off. And his friend said to him, well, you know, uh, you were supposed to be here an hour ago. Uh, and so uh, it's like the window is just closing. I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to make it. And Duffy said he looked over to his alarm clock and realized that he had set the wrong time on the alarm clock. Then he looked at his wife and his wife knew immediately what he had done. Right. And he looked at his wife with disgust, like it was her fault. And she's like, mm-mm. Mm -mm. You set the alarm clock. And she looked at him like, and I married him? (laughs) I mean, just like, I can't believe. Because she was going to have the opportunity as well. And he's like, look, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And his friend said, there's no way. There's no way. You're not going to get through DC traffic. He said, look, this is the only window. This is the only window. You are not going to be able to make it. And he lost it. Duffy said, I just... I missed it and he wasn't able to meet the president ever. Um, I think every single day we have an opportunity to meet Jesus Christ. And we have all sorts of alarm clocks that we set for ourselves. We have all sorts of distractions that we place in our way. And God says, actually, I'll meet you in the morning. I'll meet you in the afternoon. I'll meet you in the evening. I'll meet you anytime on your terms. I will not allow traffic or anything to be a distraction if you want to meet Mimi. I'm just telling you, my friends, that if you do not connect with Jesus, if you do not make the time to hear His voice in your life, you will just spiral and spend all your time discussing wretched about yourself. You will not focus on the greatest miracle that ever took place, the greatest plan that ever existed. But God said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is time that we embrace that he has called us and that we are transformed by his narrative, and that his identity is our identity.